Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, the weekly show. Uh, one of the voices you will hear is me, Jeff Lemon. The other one coming in in just a moment will be Adam Collins. Another one, a third one, three voices for the price of one later in the show. Bharat Sundaresan will be joining us because this was the week that Mahendra Singh Dhoni retired. One of the most influential figures in Indian cricket in its entirety has hung up the uh, gloves and bat internationally. I suspect he'll continue to play in the IPL for another 40 to 50 years, but will not be going around for India in the blue uniform anymore. Barat wrote the book, The Bible on Dhoni, The Dhoni Touch, it's called. You can sort of hum that with a bloodhound gang sort of tune behind it if you want. <laughs> you and me, baby, ain't nothing but lower order strikers. That'll be a bit later in the show, in the back half of the show. Uh, there'll be a, a little bit of a little bit of, of numerology looking at a couple of cricket numbers. Most of that's happening on our weekend show now, which has been named Storytime, where we're in the market for a sponsor for that if you're interested um, drop us a line on the DMs or or finalwordcricket at gmail.com and there's quite a lot to get through in the news and views of the week so far. The most pressing, the biggest issue, of course, is while I was waiting to start recording this show, I could hear Adam exclaiming off off screen, off mic, going, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. It turns out that, um, that Winnie's had her first adult shit. So, you know, her first proper, <laughs> solid, recognisable stool motion, if you will. And, and you're delighted, aren't you? Yeah, and I'm sure she's going to be thrilled. She's going to be thrilled when she's like, I don't know, 12 or something. And this episode of the podcast has brought the yeah. attention that we're talking about her first proper grown-up shit. But it happened, and it just happened then. So she's been getting stuck into the solid foods. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago we've been weaning her, but yesterday was her first big tilt. She ate two pieces of albeit mushed up fruit and a, a stack of cauliflower and that was enough to, to bring it on um, get the job done just Oof. then and Rach called me in as I was getting ready to join the zoom call with you and uh, there it was in all its glory <laughs> so she had a massive smile on her face as she should uh, and yeah it's, it's been it's been interesting having her spit food at me for the last few days as I'm trying to feed her but she is really enjoying it uh, and she's in as always great spirit she's putting on stacks of weight as well which we're quite enjoying I'm um, watching her sort of chunk up as we're kind of down at her grandparents' house and I suppose she's getting, um, you know, fed a lot, as you'd expect. So it's been a cool little part. She turned six months the other day, so, you know, uh, where, yeah, it's just a... I say it a lot whenever we talk about Winnie, but it's just a, there's, there's no cynicism, just it's completely earnest. It's just the best thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's great family activity, family bonding activity, and hopefully you can keep calling one another into the... Uh, appropriate room to examine the motions for, for years to come. Hopefully it'll just, just keep being something you can enjoy <laughs> together. Um, you've, you've just wrapped up not much of a test match in, in England. We sort of notionally mm. thought we'd be talking about that quite a bit on the show, but we won't be much at all because basically it rained uh, for almost the entire time. Pakistan managed to get one innings in and then England got a handful of overs. Well, you know, they were four for whatever. And uh, when it was called off after much rain and bad light and delays and so on that, that frustrated everyone. Everybody across the five days. 
Yeah, and it was set up beautifully as well. The track was a belter, and I don't mean like a belter as in magnificent the bat on, although I think as the test matured, it would have been a good track to have batted on. But certainly on day one and day two, which became one protracted day with sort of two half days and lots of rain delays and bad light, which we'll come to in a tick. But it was just what you want for test cricket. It was seaming and bouncing and carrying and, um, you know, it, it was, it, they were the component parts of a wicket which you just knew was going to produce a fantastic test match, which was all the more disappointing when it petered out into a, a rainy, sodden sort of dark draw. But when we spoke on the weekly show last week, it was just, I think just after uh, we heard from James Anderson basically talk himself into the 11 for this test match. So he, savvy operator, Jimmy, uh, at age 38, he's done, he's been, you know, not his first rodeo when it comes to managing the media. It's not his first grown up shit. <laughs> you know, he's, he knows the solid, he's passed a solid stool before. <laughs> he knows, he has indeed. Uh, he uh, he um, spoke to us last Monday. Called you in to have a look. He said, check this one out, fellas. Is this the work of a healthy fast bowler? <laughs> Is ready to play. I think it is. I think it is. Uh, that's three foot of cauliflower right there. Just rock solid. Yeah, that's that's pureed peach right there. Uh, no, but he but he did sort of say, "I hope I have the faith of the captain and the coach." And that sort of the I don't know. I guess that hinted to us that maybe he was trying his best to kind of manage that internally via the media. And fair enough, if he was, <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> But he got in the team, he bowled really well, picked up the first two wickets for England and a third later on. He was probably England's most effective bowler, although Broad um, mm. cleaned up and took four, a couple towards the end and looked the part again. Broad's now taken 25 wickets at 12 uh, since uh, getting brought back in for the second test of the summer. He's taken three wickets or more seven times in a row. So every time he's bowled this summer, Broad's taken at least three wickets in the innings, which is a pretty amazing uh, trot to be on, considering yeah, he was uh, surplus to requirements when they played their first test match against the Windies, which feels like a million years ago but it's probably about six or seven weeks ago if that given how much cricket they're cramming in but yeah they were in a great position having bowled out Pakistan for 236 albeit that was on the fourth morning when they finally took that wicket with the whole third day rained off and then yeah seven for one in their reply Shaheen Afridi gorgeous delivery to pick up Rory Burns Muhammad Abbas jagging it around you're thinking this is going to be a brilliant afternoon of captivating cricket and then the rain the drizzle the bad light it combined for to the day being called it. I think it was twenty to four or something like that, or maybe ten to four. And then by about four thirty, about half an hour after they made the formal announcement, it was a glorious afternoon. It was sort of warm. Mm. The players were sunbaking on the balcony. It was perfect weather. But um, the, the view of the officials was that the bowlers' run-ups in the outfield was too wet from the rain over the previous couple of days. But it was um, disappointing. I mean, we, we saw uh, Mohammad Rizwan in Australia last year, Jeff. It looked like he was really well-placed to have a productive international career. Of course, those two centuries against Australia in white ball cricket in early 2019. And then I think he made 95 at Brisbane yeah. in the second innings and really looked apart. He top-scored uh, and continues to impress so that's the one takeout point I suppose for Pakistan as for England in addition to the, the the two quicks who keep on keeping on Zach Crawley made a half century yesterday and looked pretty good uh, he missed the previous couple of test matches due to team balance but with Stokes missing they had to uh, find a way to, to get Crawley uh, into the team again so uh, they look like they've pulled the right rein there in terms of backing a guy who doesn't have a particularly good first class record but it looks like a fairly skillful player. The bizarre bit for me you know I, I didn't stay tuned to a lot of the rain coverage because I knew there wasn't much to watch. But 
Waking up after the fifth morning, uh, well, the, 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 the fifth evening as it had been in England the morning afterwards and seeing that they'd shaken hands on the draw when they were actually able to get on and play. Now, they, you know, England were four down. Obviously, was, there was no point as far as the match result went to playing on. But you would have thought when there's, when there's been that much effort gone to, to, to get a test series happening and there's been that much time lost to bad light and, and terrain and they were actually on the field, why would they call it off early? Like, why not just play on for as long as they could? Well, technically, it's because England declared. So what happened was at the very end, once they were up to uh, an hour to go, which I should add, by the way, an hour to go was 22 minutes late. Pakistan managed to be 22 minutes late through their first two hours, which I think is a credit to them for taking the piss to that extent. Uh, but um, <laughs> Azar Ali brought himself on. And, you know, he bowls leg breaks, as we've seen a lot over the years. Yeah, he bowls decent ones. Pretty decently, right. He bowls, he, he, he bowls one delivery, an outswinger to Josh Butler, a beautiful peach of a delivery which started at about leg stump and missed the off stump past the outside edge as well. And Joe Root and jo- Josh Butler kind of nodded at each other, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll declare now. So Pakistan were entitled to about a second time and they could have played out the last hour. But uh, I think England, from their perspective, with Root and Butler, they didn't see a huge amount uh, in you know potentially getting out and uh, the confidence blow that might have left. Indeed, even if Pakistan took two or three more wickets, the, the boost that would give them going into the third test. So I definitely see your perspective there, Jeff, about, you know, play till the end when you've had so little cricket. But I guess the the other side of it is that from England's side of things, they, they just wanted to get off and, and they didn't have a huge amount to gain. And after a, a pretty shitty week, I, I kind of see that as well. The bad light question, it's been going around a lot. It's been spoken about a lot this week, you know, huge frustration at, at times when it wasn't raining and they could have been out there except the light wasn't deemed to be good enough. If you're not familiar with it, basically the umpires take a reading. uh, They have their light meters out there. And the first time in a test that they decide it's too dark and they're going off, they have to take that reading. And then any time for the rest of the match that the light hits the same reading, they have to go off immediately. That's the way it works. And a lot of people are making the point reasonably enough that when when there's so much riding on these games and, and there's so much money put into staging them and broadcasting them, you know, surely you should try harder to get play on and to keep play on. I know you, you had the idea probably a couple of years ago when we were getting frustrated at this in another series of using the pink ball as as a get out. So, so basically they decide that floodlights aren't good enough to see the red ball by and it's partly for the fielders as well as for the batters that if that ball's coming at you at the edge of the circle at, at a clip you might not be able to pick it up whereas the pink ball they've decided is visible enough to play day-night tests so your idea which which some other people have been talking about as well have, has been replace the red ball with a, a similarly aged pink ball and enable them to play on under floodlights um, whenever the light gets bad enough. I'm less bullshit about my own idea than I was a couple of years ago. <laughs> that happens. And, and I, and I age, think, age and experience. I've read yeah. some things I wrote a long time ago and I'm like, ooh, no, 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 no. I, I, still, <laughs> think, I still think my, my thinking is fair and reasonable, uh, which is that, um, yeah, as you say, Jeff, you throw them a pink ball of a similar age and the next morning you pick up with the red. However, it does uh, throw up some um, logistical curiosities there. And look, I, I, I go back one step. I think that what we need to appreciate with this is that it is a lot of grey area, so to speak, and it's not a straightforward binary thing. It isn't simply... So a lot of where I got frustrated this week was that 
the argument of, oh, they're mollycoddled professional cricketers. Fucking get on with it, you soft cocks. Well, no, that, that's that's not it because um, there's a reason why fielders and cricketers, especially fielders, but cricketers generally have said uh, that the red ball is hard to pick up, especially at point and square leg, square of the wicket. You know, if a professional cricketer tells us that safety is an issue, who are we to tell them that they're lying or wrong or whatever? Like, So mm. let's, I think we can kind of, put to one side that extreme argument the other side of the argument i suppose is that let's just use a pink ball all the time on the basis of the pink ball has been proven successful under floodlights it's been built for that reason and developed and improved i should add as well over a number of seasons so from 2015 to 2020 that pink ball's got better and better but again i I take the advice of experts those who work in the industry who say that the ball will never have the same component parts to the red ball in terms of the way they dye it the synthetic dye i don't know i don't understand it i I can't it's it's basically the lacquer lacquer, Um, as i understand it is that the pink ball has an extra surface on it in order to help to get that colour, that intensity, vividity of colour uh, needs a surface rather than just a dye that soaks in. Right. And then it also has an extra layer of lacquer to keep that, to protect that colour surface for longer. So basically that affects the way that it swings. Yeah, so there's that side of it. And the other part, which they say, is that once it gets old, once we're past that lacquering, I suppose, it gets very yeah. soft and it's no good for bowlers at all, and uh, especially ordinary for spinners. So, again, it's complicated. There's a lot of grey area. I repeat that point. So I sort of view it now more like uh, footy, and I'm sorry to to do this because people probably get sick of us talking about AFL all the time. Footy is cricket. But footy is cricket. Footy is footy. Um, Everybody knows who who follows footy closely (laughs) that footy is best played when it's not wet and when it's not dewy and when the ball is dry and therefore most of the time during the daytime. It's part of the argument for why the grand final should remain in the afternoon and not in the evening is that the skill level is higher when the ball's not slippery. I sort of view it the same way with the red ball and the pink ball with test matches. Ideally, you play with the red ball all the time because the red ball is fundamentally superior to the pink ball. But where that coincides with what you you talked about Mm. off the top, Jeff, that dissatisfaction, the fact that not just this test match but... Probably all five test matches this summer have had a running with bad light at one stage or another and a couple of times we've been you know, looking at each other wondering how they're not on because of the reading taken on day one. If it means a compromise needs to be found with the pink ball at the end of play, that might be the only way through this. But talking to a, a senior batsman the other day, he said to me, no way. You, what you guys don't understand is that trying to adjust from a red ball to a pink ball is very difficult, to which I responded, well... Batsmen often have to adjust in changing conditions, whether it's yeah. uh, it starts to drizzle or the sun comes out, or you know there's a change of bowler, or the you know well, yeah Jack Leach comes off and Joffre Archer comes on. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. sorry, it's t- it's too hard. I can't adjust. But, but I guess there's, there's all these different parts in it all. So I think one, let's deal with the low hanging fruit first. The fact that in England Test match cricket does not start before eleven o'clock under any circumstance needs to change and I think will change. In Australia, play starts at 10.30. They can adjust it to to 10 a.m. And the reason they do that is is because of the television news, to be honest. It's got nothing to do with the the flow of the day. But I don't see any reason why we couldn't have a a similar degree of flexibility in the UK. If play is meant to start at 11 but you shuffle it back to 10.30, I know it's because of trains before people email and DM me. I get it's because of the rural trains are getting to test venues and that's the way people get there. That's why it's traditionally been 11 a.m. I totally respect that but if it means you're going to miss half an hour of cricket to make the test flow well okay a test match runs for seven hours if you miss the first half an hour because of that i mean it's a shame but i mean you know these are where the concessions need to be made i think the way i'm seeing it is this if you have a test match where you keep going off for bad light late in the day then trying to make up lost time at the end of the day is 
incredibly duffed because you're not going to be able to make it up because you keep going off for bad light. But equally, if if you're losing time at the end of days, how does that make any difference to someone who's arrived at 11 o'clock, whether you've started playing or not? Because their their day ends at the same time. They don't lose any play. They they miss half an hour that they wouldn't have got anyway because it was supposed to be the day before and they miss half an hour that they're not going to get later in the day because it'll end early for bad light most likely. So, like, who who cares about when someone arrives? Sorry you missed half an hour. Like, tough fucking luck. Yeah, and, and that's the most compelling part, the idea that the light reading would suggest that play will tend to finish at the same time if the weather remains broadly consistent through the five days. But nonetheless, that's been that's been the history of it, that it's to do with a number okay. of not wanting to start at 11. So just to explain... Various I, I, majors and colonels got angry because yeah. because play had started when they got there. Yeah, so that, I think it's actually it. to do with off-peak trains versus peak trains. But anyway, that, yeah. that's that's by the by. To, to step back again from this, I know this can get quite confusing. In Australia, when we lose time in a day's play, when we return the next day to make it up, we make it up at the front of the day. So the scheduled mm-hmm. play reverts to 10am and the close stays at 5.30, of course, with the extra half an hour allowed for slow over rates. In England, it's the reverse of that. So you come back on day two after day one's been affected by rain. Play will still start at 11, but instead of play being scheduled to finish at six, it'll finish at half past six. And then you get the extra half an hour for the slow over rate and eventually finishes at at 7pm. What I'm recommending is two things. One is that we go early in the UK, not late. So we, we spool back to 10.30 start times, not 11 o'clock start times in that event. That's one. But two, that we build in the flexibility to make up an hour of play each day rather than half an hour. So the umpires and the ECB aren't permitted at the moment to add more than half an hour to the next day, the subsequent day. They're only mm. allowed to get an extra half. Of course, that disregards the, um, the, the, the slow over rate half an hour. They're permitted to add eight overs per day. So if you miss a lot of play on day one, each subsequent day becomes 98 overs. What I'm saying is that, well, okay, we're playing four-day test matches now where we're cramming in 98 overs per day where if there were to be rain in a four-day test match, we would then add another eight overs on top of that and we'd be permitted to have 106 overs to be played where rain rain fell. But in a five-day test match, we leave it at 98. What I'm saying is that why don't we cover both bases, start earlier, still allow ourselves to go later and permit 108 overs to be played across the day. Now, I get that that will be very taxing on a team in the field for a couple of days, but it seems to me like a small piece of low-hanging fruit in the context of four-day test matches already having that up their sleeve and accounting for what you're talking about there, Jeff, with the idea that once the light reading's taken on day one, you're kind of stuffed on two, three, four if the sun's setting at around the same time. And, you know, when we were in South Africa a few years ago, Jeff, remember in Durban, the sun was, I mean, you, you couldn't have played cricket at six o'clock when the schedule close of play no. was. Well, it, it was, it's, it's it was on the genuinely dangerous. the country. Yeah. And they've got, one, they've got one time zone for the entire country and, and that's on the far east coast. So it's the, it's the first place to lose the light. So, look, it, what you'd love to see with so many of these things in cricket is just a bit more pragmatism to say, well, let's be flexible, you know, start earlier, 10.30, fucking, I mean, start at 10 o'clock, why not? Like, just do what you need to do because, yeah, it's a, if it's a long day for the players, it sucks. But also if you've been sitting around with your feet up while it's raining all the previous day then you've probably got a bit of extra in the tank anyway have the pink ball as a fallback option for bad light you know use it, it just getting some cricket on is going to be better even if it's compromised that that seems to be the, yeah. the pretty obvious takeaway like nothing's going to be perfect but it's better than not playing at all i think we need to graduate this i don't think having a, a series of like what we consider to be extreme reforms and immediately that, that won't 
work. People won't go with that. Where the Trotskyists have bad yeah, luck. Right. <laughs> but where I think they might go for it is extending the hours of play, like I talked about before, making 108 overs possible, mm. and going, you know, both, and even what you said there, Jeff, about 10 a.m. Well, yeah, I think that's viable too. If the umpires have the flexibility to shuffle everything forward one entire hour, and if if light is especially bad, so you put your whole 60 minutes front loaded and you change the meal times, well, okay, I think we need to have that flexibility as well. And we saw that, I should add, in the first test match at Old Trafford. At Old Trafford, there was a situation where, and in the end, uh, Bad Light scuppered this, but the umpires should have um, should have came back and said there was going to be 19 further overs on, on the, uh, I think it was the first afternoon. They came back and said 24 overs, which would have taken us through to about 7.15. Now, that to me shows the umpires being a little bit tricky, a little bit clever with the extra half an hour they have permitted for slow over rates. They shouldn't have done that, but I think they were trying to show resourcefulness, trying mm. to show a sense of getting ahead of the curve with bad light. And in the end, again, that was a moot point. But I, I don't think this is a case of uh, umpire Kettleborough, you know, with his light, reader, light meter out, not wanting to be out there and, and sort of the match, the ground staff not wanting to get the water off the pitch and so on. Although I, I, I sort of take the advice of those who were there sort of arriving at the conclusion that perhaps they could have done more when it was drizzling at Southampton this week. I'm, I wasn't there, so hard for me to judge. But generally speaking, I think everybody wants to get on. It's just we just need to now... I think it's like one of those things where if you throw it open and have a, a conversation, smart people, far smarter than us, will come up with something. But I think in the first instance, playing times, and maybe look at the pink ball if we can get the players on board for it. Because what's not sustainable is, ah, oh, they're just weak. Chuck them on there. Play till the close, and if they don't want to play, well, they you know th- fuck that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's got that's that's not that's not part of it. And I saw Joe Root last night was saying the same thing. Root was saying uh, by the same thing. I mean, uh, showing a, a sense of resourcefulness, saying he wants people above his pay grade to work this out. Maybe a lighter mm. shade of red. He said playing till earlier in the morning. They're, they're, the players are open to this as well. So I think you know, even though this was a shitty week, at least it might help restart this annoying conversation. The Australian men's team is going to the UK to play in some of this bad light and drizzle. Uh, three one days, three T Twenty matches, a, a big squad going over. Pretty much all of the usual suspects. Uh, a few interesting inclusions and omissions. They've, they've got a, a few sort of big bash types in that squad going over. In Darcy Short, Ryan Phillippe, Daniel Sams, and Riley Meredith. Uh, Warney will be absolutely pumped about that one. Pat Cummins has been named the vice captain Andrew Tyres back in that squad after being out of it for a while. Usman Khawar just missing, and that's probably the most interesting one given given he went into the World Cup last year as the highest one-day run scorer in the world and was in the, the top three of the voting for the one-day player of the year at the AB medal count uh, back in February. So he's not there and basically being dropped from the test team in the third after the third test at Headingley has also ended his one-day career for whatever reason. The first things first, if you heard Ryan Philippe there, not Josh Philippe, that's just Jeff continuing an ongoing joke between uh, us about cruel intentions. Uh, (laughs) Who can forget? The cinema classic. Given we've done it so often, I'm doing radio for this series, I guarantee that I'll end up calling him Ryan Philippe on air. There's nothing more certain on this planet. Anyway, look, loads of talking points, though, I think, in this squad. Because it's such a big squad, it just lends itself to these different threads. And one of them is that AJ Ty is stateless at the moment. Uh, he hasn't got a contract with WA. He's basically a T20 freelancer. But on the basis that we now 
don't have a T20 World Cup until next year and then a couple in, in succession. And, of course, he's a fantastic, um, one of the best you know, death bowlers in, in T20 cricket around the world. Now he's back into the squad, whereas he kind of wasn't necessarily a first choice last summer. So, But they've brought him with them. So he'll be getting an opportunity in that squad of 21. Pat Cummins is now the vice-captain, the solo vice-captain. And this is quite important, I think. So Aaron Finch spoke to the media overnight in Australia and he, he spoke about why uh, they made this decision. So Alex Carey was the co-vice-captain. And of course, Josh Hazelwood's had it at different points. Mitchell Marsh as well. But... From Finch's perspective, leading into a number of global tournaments over the next three years, he wants this kind of like one line of communication. He wants to be very clear. He's the captain. Pat Cummins is the vice captain. That's the line of communication. And, you know, no further discussion or no further debate to be entered into on this point. So it wasn't like a a demotion for Kerry as much as it was almost elevating Cummins and his seniority in that squad. So I expect we'll see that replicated in, in the test team as well. Yeah, most likely. I mean, it, it did all get a bit confused. The vice-captaincy thing where you had Mitch Marsh being the vice-captain and then being out of the side. You had co-vice-captains with Josh Hazelwood being one, but they're not being in the white ball teams for, for quite a long time, although he is uh, back in this squad. So quite a, a test-heavy uh, contingent, I suppose, because Hazelwood's there, Marnus Labashain is there, uh, Nathan Lyons there. So players who've uh, been considered as red ball players foremost in the past have got in there under Langer. Uh, Marcus Stoinis gets the chance to restart his one-day career after a pretty horrendous World Cup. He just couldn't couldn't hit one out of the middle, basically, in the World Cup. Had no no power and no timing, so he's got the chance after um, doing doing the job in domestic cricket in the last season. And Finch was good on Stoinis, saying that, well, look, you don't get many players who can, who can bowl important overs in a one-day international, who can hit the ball as far as he can and be one of the best fielders in the world. I'm like, yeah, I guess that, you know, when you put it like that, he does need to be given perhaps more opportunities than his numbers might have suggested in, in last year's World Cup. You mentioned uh, Hazelwood. The other kind of, it was, it's almost easy to overlook the fact that Mitch Stark's in the team, but this tends to be the sort of time of the year that Mitch Stark takes some time off. But, in the absence of any cricket, they're all there. All of the fast bowlers, you know, remember two years ago in 2018, Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark, none of them made the trip, but this time they're, they're all here, which sort of says a little bit about, I suppose, the, the, the circumstances we're in at the moment. Nathan Lyons also playing. Finch explained that they want to have an option back into the right-hander, which makes sense. Um, no one's saying that Zampa and Agar, of course, both in the team, they did fantastically well in South Africa uh, earlier this year, which kind of feels like a really long time ago now, um, but they want to have Lyon, who was in the World Cup squad last Last year, of course, and played at the back end of that tournament ahead of Zampa. They want a conventional off-spin option uh, as they work their way towards those tournaments. And um, Riley Meredith, Jeff, a player who we've talked about on the final word a few times, um, mostly because Shane Warne sort of has a has a thing for him, uh, and it, it, he's almost been a point of parody in that respect. But um, obviously, a very capable, fast young Tasmanian who's going to get his first proper opportunity. And uh, the big the big talking point, which I left to the back, just just to change things up on the final word once and for all is that uh, Maxie's back. Glenn Maxwell is is back in that squad and, and presumably in both of those teams, you'd think, given given that if they're looking for firepower down the order, they're, they're still a bit light on. You know, they're still... You don't see much in the way of those really destructive T20 lower order hitters. Obviously, Darcy Short opens in the big bash. So it's, it's really Maxwell, Stoinis, maybe Mitchell Marsh are the the three who can come in late in an innings and, and launch for the hills. This will be interesting to see how they use those three players you mentioned there. It's clear they want Mitchell Marsh now to take the next step as a 50-over cricketer. 
leading into those. You know, he's, you, you would say now Mitch Marsh is in, in the part of his, his uh, time as an Australian player where he'll be the most productive as a batsman, you know, sort of age profile and so forth. And he did so at the end of, you know, before lockdown against New Zealand, albeit in that one, uh, that one match and in the Big Bash, I think, periodically last year. And I think you can go as far back as the year before when he was first getting sort of blooded back into the one-day team after a couple of years away. So I reckon they'll be using him regardless as, as the fifth bowling option too. Then there's Maxwell, who you expect will play, as you say, Jeff, whether he's batting at five or six. And then Stoinis, who they've brought back into the mix for reasons that I outlined before. So is there room for three of them? If there is, then, well, maybe they do have the firepower. But at the same time, uh, you know, they, they need to squeeze in, obviously, Warner and Smith and Labuschagne, who made it 100 at his last time of asking um, in that South African tour. Um, I must be missing someone there. Matthew Wade was in the team, I think, the last time they played, although I expect he'll be backup now Alex Carey will be the wicket keeper so there's a lot of uh, players who who are sort of uh, in the mix for obviously not that many batting positions they might rotate it around given the six games some might play the T20s others might play the one days but there's going to be three warm-up games before the first T20 which is on the fourth at Southampton and then they play the one days up at Manchester so maybe there'll be a you know almost a bat off if you like because they'll they'll have two Teams worth of players, twenty-one there, but I suppose they'll they'll get funky with the the twenty-second. Maybe the you know maybe the, uh, the 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 team physio might play or something like that uh, to make up the numbers. Maybe they'll ask, um, uh, yeah, because they won't have many people to choose from, of course, being COVID bubble and so on. But yes, it's it's going to be fun, I reckon, because you know when it boils down to it, yes, it's a relatively meaningless white ball tour in the grand scheme of things, but it's been a bloody long time, so I'm, I'm quite looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I think there'll be more attention paid to it than, than say, there was to the corresponding England one-day tour a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, as for the, the Australian summer, that looks like it, it might all be a mess, which is well, it's not great news for us because we've made all our travel plans, but the, that whole schedule might be turned upside down by some of the reports from Andrew Wu was writing about this week that they might make the uh, the white ball games against India first and push the test matches back but you know I mean frankly who knows because any city could could have a infection conflagration at any time between now and then sounds like they want to have another crack in two weeks uh, from what I'm hearing about a schedule so you know effectively junking what they put out in May which is fair enough no criticism there they they had to put a schedule out then uh, in order to um, satisfy broadcaster sponsors and so on. No, no concerns about them getting on the front foot when COVID was nowhere near as problematic as, it, as, it, as it's turned out to be in the last six or eight weeks in different parts of Australia, especially Melbourne. So that felt pretty well briefed about the uh, the test and the one days or test and the white ball games getting flipped around in order to let the Indian players uh, who were just white ball specialists not have to be in the country for um, that sustained stretch after the IPL because, of course, they'll have been in um, the UAE um, immediately before coming to Australia. So the Afghanistan test as well, Jeff, there was some whispers last week, and I think this was in Wooey's story as well, that that could be moved to Hobart later in the summer instead of Perth. Indeed, it might still be in Hobart at the start of the summer as well, obviously. They'll, they'll take into consideration, I'm sure, Indian Premier League. Maybe that goes back a week with quarantine. Because at the moment, of course, the Australian players, I mean, whether they would even be able to play at the pointy end of the IPL because of the Afghanistan test, that those two things might collide. So if they're going to start again, I'm sure they'll take that into consideration. But yes, long story short is that in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have more to say. But it feels as though, as you pointed out, Jeff, that we're going to be calling airlines and begging them for forgiveness and hoping that we can... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm already going to have to do that because of the Women's World Cup, but I'll have to. I'll do it. I'm, I've actually put off the phone call to Qantas about the Women's World Cup. Uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to wait until 
schedule. This next schedule's released, and then I'll, yep. do, I'll do the the whole sob story do a job in, lot. in one go and say everything's yeah. fucked. How, how do we sort this out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Um, I suppose having Rashid Khan there is a huge part of that as well, who who would be in the IPL and would be needed in that test. Uh, The political brawling keeps going on in South Africa. So Chris Nenzani, the chairman of the board, has quit um, just before the AGM and the acting CEO, Jacques Fall, who was subbing in for the suspended CEO, Tabang Moreau, um, has quit as well. So Christ knows what is happening over there. We, we might, we'll try to get one of our South African correspondents on the show in, in the next few weeks to work out what's going on there. Might chat to Dan Gallen uh, for the SA perspective. Uh, the South African women's team is probably not going to England. Now, this is more of the same thing we were talking about a, a couple of weeks ago when Basically, that in cancelling the Women's 50 Over World Cup, what the boards are really saying is that means that we don't have to actually schedule any tours between now and then, which we can't be bothered doing and it's too expensive. So that's that's how I'm reading it. Um, so, you know, other teams can go to England to play test matches against the men, but the women can't go to play against England's women. Yeah, I hope Claire Connor doesn't hear that. She'll want to strangle you for saying that. Uh, England desperately wants South Africa to come to um, tour uh, next month, but the South African uh, side of the equation's got trickier with COVID. Uh, so what they're trying to do now is a last-ditch effort with the West Indies and trying to somehow get the West Indies to come and fill the place at the last minute. Of course, the Caribbean um, governments were willing to allow that to happen with the men. The trick there, though, is that since the men came, as I understand it, travel between countries in the Caribbean has been it's tighter, the restrictions, than they were before. So it feels like we're trending towards this all hitting the skids, which is terrible news for Heather Knight's side. I mean, Heather was on social media last week absolutely gutted about the World Cup being called off. And to think that uh, it was going to be eight internationals, three T20s and five uh, one-day internationals uh, across a sort of a three-week period, which would have been okay, you know what I mean? Like eight, game, eight games of international cricket isn't that bad, given everything that's happened before and given how much has been lost. But it may mean, Jeff, that the only real cricket they get this year is the um, Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy, which starts next week. So that's something in the, the new regional structures that we discussed with Isabel Westbury probably two or three months ago on, on the final word but this is just terrible news especially after India cancelled a couple of weeks ago the tri-series then now to have South Africa saying the same thing but yeah I, how much international women's cricket we do see between now and the next World Cup that's uh yeah well yes we we will wait and see. We noted last week Beth Mooney on her way out from the Brisbane Heat. Um, they lost another one this week, Sammy Joe Johnson, who's their all-rounder and, and pinch hitter, the one who came in and clobbered, was it five sixes or four sixes in a row off Sophie Devine in mm. the final and you know got out off the next ball but basically had, had done the job um, pinch hitting at first drop. Uh, Sammy Joe is on her way to the Sydney Thunder, so swapping the, the teal for the, for the light green. The <laughs> real real, the, yeah, real the, change in the colour palette. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, but but it's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah, I've I've done no journalism on this, so I'm not going to speculate. But if your two best players leave and you've won the flag the previous two years, that's um, unusual. Especially when I mentioned this on on the final word a couple of weeks ago. I interviewed Beth sort of two or three months ago for Women's Crickzone magazine, which comes out this week, good people doing good things there. And she loves the Brisbane Heat and she's gone. That struck me as unusual. And Sammy Jo Johnson getting this great opportunity in her career there and being so influential in those back-to-back pennants, she's gone as well. So, yeah, uh, it, it might just be 
one of those things. On the other hand, it might maybe be it's just maybe when you win flags, people come hardy for your players. You know, possibly, like yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm sure someone will get the chance to do the journalism on that and speak to the uh, the players in question and find out if anything else is going on beneath the surface here at Brisbane. But yes, they have won the last two comps and they're a fantastic team up there. So it's going to make for an interesting WBBL with all of these players moving clubs. Of course, we mentioned Sophie Devine, Meg Lanning, Beth Mooney, and now Sammy Joe. So four pretty big names on the move in that competition. And now, on this week's show, it is time, very briefly, just a couple of little cheeky numbers down the back of the sofa for a little round of Nerd Pledge. Uh, My voice is breaking. I'm finally (laughs) becoming a man. The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our Patreon page where they challenge us and support us at the same time. It's a real nurturing relationship. Uh, They support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents And those numbers equate to a cricket number and we have to work out what the number is. Uh, Incidentally, MS Dhoni retiring this week was apparently playing Nerd Pledge, suggested Steve Pritchard sending us Dhoni's message, which said, as of 1929, I will no longer be a cricketer. Uh, He was referring to the time, 7.30ish, but what did the 1929 really mean? We don't know. Was it something to do with the great stock market crash? Was it something to do with the rise of Hitler? Can't be sure. 1929 is a big year of Weimar Republic, uh, hyperinflation, um, around the time of Cabaret, you know, Liza Minnelli, all the rest of it. The, the, you could, there are a lot of ways you can delve into that. Yeah, there actually was some nerd pledgery in it too, Jeff. So Suresh Rayner also retired on Saturday. Of course, fantastic player, world champion, all the rest. But he announced his international retirement with Dhoni and, and they explained that they did it because their two playing numbers for India added up to the number 73 and it was 73 years since India became independent on the 15th of August 1947 so they're like what better day for two greats of Indian cricket to give it away than that so and, um, and that's not me making that up that was that was what Rainer said uh, when explaining why he decided to give it away on the same day as MS on yeah, August 15 which incidentally was my birthday as well not 73rd birthday, but another birthday. No, you're, but, you're like half the age of Indian independence. Yeah, um, that's right. right. Well, half well, your age plus seven. <laughs> yeah, hard, hard <laughs> numerology. You're allowed to date the, the new nation, the Republic of India, ROI. What's the ROI on this? Uh, the, our first number, we're just going to do three nice and quick ones today. Uh, Jeremy Burke is our first candidate. Thank you, Jeremy. $6.14. Very generous pledge. Thank you. What might 614 mean? Well, it jumped out to me immediately, Adam. 614 has to be 6414, which is the return, the famous return that Gary Gilmore picked up in the World Cup semi-final in 1975. Swing bowler. Didn't play a whole lot for Australia, but had this one game. But six of the top seven out for England, absolutely resold them. Dennis Amos, Barry Wood, Keith Fletcher, Tony Gregg, Frank Hayes and Alan Knott, four LBs, a bold and a court behind, hosed them for 93. And Jeremy had sent us a clue, which was also what really confirmed to me that this would be it. He said, it's only half the story. The other half of the story, of course, is that Australia in chasing 94 to win ended up at six for 39 in in real strife. Chris Old and John Snow ran through the Australians. Uh, 
five of them made single-figure scores out of, out of the top six that fell. Uh, and then Gilmore came in at number eight, clobbered 28 not out at a runner ball and, and won the semi-final for Australia to get into that final against the West Indies with that thrilling last wicket stand with uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson. So that's that's got to be a 6-14, doesn't it? Yeah, normally I would jump in with the second option, but that's perfect with the clue and with the way you've told the story. Thank you, Jeremy. As you say, it's a very generous pledge. We're grateful for it and I'm glad that we've got Gary Gilmore into Nerd Pledge. A double header next up from Cumbrian, Cumbrian, who must be, that means Scottish, doesn't it? Or like north, near, nearly Scottish, almost Scottish? I, Scottish? I'm, I'm pretty sure Cumbria is the in the northeast corner of the country, not yeah. quite Scotland. Caledonian is what I was thinking. Caledonians mm. are Scots. But the Cumbrians, are they're close to Scotland, which probably means they hate them more than they hate people from further away. That's usually how it works. Your nearest neighbours are the most loathed. And also from John Leather who is secretly on the internet when he when he goes into a phone booth and takes his glasses off he becomes hypercost the great cricket statistician so $1.99 is the number from both of them 199 what do you think adam well first of all i should add that um, cumbria is in northwest of england of course not the northeast of england it's um, northumberland that's on the east west other side same same um, well, uh, well okay first of all i'm glad that we've got the great hypercost with us on the segment today unfortunately I, I didn't get very far with his number because his number must relate to women's cricket um, on the basis that he's a, a truly great women's cricket statistician. So instead I... Don't you worry. Don't you fret your head you've got about that, it. You've I've got, got that covered. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear. So I, I did... I, all I could find in women's cricket that was that England made it against India in a T20 a few years ago and there were a couple of one-day games but none of them really stood out. It's only their third highest T20 score, England, so that's, that's not going to be it. Yeah, and I've been at the... That's cool. That's and cool. I've been at the top two, I think, from memory. Anyway, um, they were both at uh, <laughs> Somerset a couple of years ago. But uh, there have been a few prominent Australian 199s that all happened in relatively quick succession. So Matthew Elliott, 199 at Leeds uh, in the 97 Ashes series. Of course, Steve Waugh a couple of years later at Bridgetown when he just became captain of the Australian team fell for 199 and then Steve Smith the game that I was calling a ball indeed that I was commentating on uh, Caribbean radio in 2015 when he fell leg before uh, got done on DRS he was absolutely gutted it says a lot about Smith I think that he was out for 199 and he was more disappointed about the one run he didn't get rather than the 199 that he did get but they're the three Aussie 199s of which I'm willing to sort of give to Cumbrian uh, as one and he can pick one mm. of those three I mean we, we may not be right because that it's not really an English connection but it's as, no. it's as good as I've got at the moment why, why would someone so staunchly regional that they've Put it in their display name. I know. Interested in Matthew Elliott. This is what you know. This is. But there's just is, nothing. Nothing. I, I went through question. all the Test 199s and all of the scores made in of 199 for for, for a team in one day international T20 and international cricket. Full stop. Mm. And all the scores are 199 made in international cricket. Full stop. And none of them really gave a sniff of something that might relate to that mm. part of the UK. So oh. mm, I'm so, thinking county. There's probably got to be a county link, but we'll come back to that one. Because, yeah. Uh, Minor count. Well, that's where, yeah. that's where Richard Gleeson came from nowhere to play that game for Northants uh, mm. all those years ago, Jeff, when you and I were calling uh, for uh, the tour game. Australia were playing against them. Richard Gleeson had been playing yep. for Cumbria, so maybe it relates to him. And if it doesn't, I hope okay. that Cumbrian will appreciate that little bit of knowledge. Well, the other one ninety nine. So Cumbrian, look, we'll have a look at that. We'll 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 come back to it on the weekend if we can find something better. You can send us a clue on the DMs if you want. 
As for Hypercost slash John Leather, it's such a great name, isn't it? You know, you're just <laughs> strutting into a place. You're like, My name is John Leather. I have a very particular set of skills. It's much better than Brian Mills. One ninety nine. There's a couple of things here. One ninety nine. What I think it is 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 a relatively simple one, which is that there's a partnership that Elise Perry and Elisa Healy put on when they batted through an entire T20 innings, I think it was last season for the Sixers, and they made 199. The Sixers score was, was uh, 199. They said yes, exactly 200 against one of the busted-ass bowling attacks, um, the Hurricanes or the Stars, I reckon. They they just batted through the 20 overs and Healy made 100 and Perry got close and, and but sort of handed it, farmed the strike for her at the end to get the 100. So that that's a good 199. Uh, one that it's probably not, but that I found interesting nonetheless, <laughs> is that in the 1982 World Cup, the Women's World Cup, 50-over World Cup, 199 is a score that New Zealand made against the International 11. And I realised I didn't know much about the International 11, so I spent a fair bit of today r- reading about them. We haven't looked at them greatly here. It's quite hysterical really that so the first two women's world cups there's this international 11 team in it because they were you know struggling for numbers a bit the first world cup in 73 they have an england team and a young england team and the international 11 which is about half english players so it's like anyone could get a run if you if you missed out once if you missed out twice you could get into the international 11 but they they rose again for the for the second world cup they they actually won a few games the first time around and got flogged in the second one, which indicated the standard was getting a bit better. But uh, this this run for New Zealand, so they had a tie with England. England had two tied matches in the 1982 World Cup alone, wow. which is just extraordinary. One of them with New Zealand. And then the next game, New Zealand uh, beat this international 11, which had four New Zealanders in it, uh, a couple of Indians, the rest were Aussies and English. But it just strikes me as completely bizarre. There were four Kiwis in the 73 team as well, that you're a New Zealander and you get in a composite team for a World Cup and then try to beat the team of your home country and prevent them from winning a World Cup. Like you're literally a fifth columnist. You're like, you're you're working for the opposition to make it harder. Or does it go the other way? You're just like, whoops, I tried on my stumps. Oh, (laughs) still I fell over again. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of when there would have been, I I suppose the Australia A summer of 94, 95 has a little bit of that and trying to beat the main team, but at least they had Australia in their their job description rather than international. I mean, of course, there are are test cricketers who play for two nations getting an established prize you yeah, know like a, yeah. the, the thing the world cup and they're like nah we're, we're gonna stuff it up for you no i like that that's a that's a very yeah. good angle in any case time for us to go and do some reading and learning to learn some more about the international 11 i reckon jeff but yeah surely that's that that first one the, the 199 wbbl partnership is where john leather would have got to thank you both for being part of nerd pledge and we have one more today jeff which i haven't been researching but i know you have four dollars 75 is the number cameron manning is the sender what is cameron manning communicating to you via brainwaves and electrons okay so cameron manning another pal of ours on twitter indeed a lot of the guys jeremy burke as well today have all been involved with us on social media over the years at 475 right so this isn't a particularly uh, it isn't the sort of number where there's tons of options, but what I did find was a 475, which reminded me of a discussion we had on Storytime probably six or eight weeks ago about the 1936-37 Melbourne Test match. So 
as a refresher. That was when Australia ended up flipping the batting order. Don Bradman came out in the second innings and made a double ton after Australia were out for very little the first time around. England, you know, declared their innings closed at sort of 80 for nine or something ridiculous. It was a terrible, sticky, wet wicket. They came back after the rest day and then Australia made a shitload of runs in the third innings with Bradman making 270, I think it is, which Wisden uh, at the end of the 20th century identified as the best innings ever played, I should add. Well, the precursor to that was in the 1894-95 Ashes Melbourne Test Match, which started on December 29, so it was played in both 1894 and 1895. That's why I should cite both years. But in that test, England were all out for 75 on the first morning. Uh, They were bowled out by Charlie Turner and Hugh Trumbull, who took eight wickets between them in a hurry. Uh, Then Australia get bowled out for 123. So without having actually looked at the report, it would suggest again that conditions were certainly stacked in favour of the bowler. And then after the rest day, England come out and make 475 in the third innings of the match with the great A.E. Stoddart, the inexhaustible A.E. Stoddart, who is now England captain, making 173. If you're a long-term listener to The Final Word, or indeed you are at our London live show last year, you'd know all about Stoddy, who, of course, eight years before this test match, made 485 for Hampstead, uh, in the in, in North London, having been out on the piss all night, uh, which at the time was the world record score in any in any club game. But by now, eight years on, he was England captain. He makes 173. Um, they end up setting Australia 428. They go on to be bowled out for 333. So it's a famous win for England. Uh, they win at Melbourne. They go 2-0 up in the series. They ended up winning 3-2, so it was a, a closely fought Ashes battle. But um, it all turned on the basis of what Stoddy was able to do in the third innings when they made 475. That is the end of Nerd Pledge. If you'd like to play and you'd like us to investigate a number, you can send it to us at patron.com slash the final word. And in doing so, you can help us keep making the show, which we are enjoying doing very much. And apparently enough of you are enjoying to keep being involved. Uh, God bless you and all who sail in you. Let's breathe in. We'll breathe out. And then we'll be back with Bharat Sundarason to talk about MSD. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. It's Zolio! <laughs> that sounded better in my head than it probably did down the end of the, end of the podcast, didn't it? Yeah, I, I, quite a few people on a train or something just like yelled and just clawed their headphones. <laughs> I, did pull, I did pull the microphone back a bit, as you meant to do in this yeah, situation. Yeah, I saw that. It was a technique. I, I, I thought you you'd appreciate it. that through the Zoom screen. I've never wanted satellite phone technology more than mm. I did last week. Really? I was really? calling more than when I'm at King's Cross Railway Station, even more than yeah. that. <laughs> You know my well-documented views before. about King's Cross fucking St Pancras Railway Station reception. I was at Radlett doing the Middlesex-Hampshire game uh, and mm-hmm. I was there for four days and Izzy and I were calling this game uh, at Deep Backward Square Leg or Deep Backward Point, depending on who, who, who was on strike. It was a, you know, it was a, we were a long way from the action because of COVID restrictions and so forth. But we didn't have a screen, so we were relying on the feed being, you know, we were getting on our iPad to be just close enough a line that we could watch it back if we needed to and pick up any mistakes, which, of course, there were many given we weren't behind the bowler's arm. But the internet kept fucking dropping out, and we were using 4G, weren't we? We weren't using Wi-Fi. We were using 4G. We were using a phone network, and I just thought to myself, 
this is the sort of technology that I want in my life. I want to be able to access a satellite. And Jeff, due to the conversations we've been having in and around the Zolio machine, the contraption, you can stick it on your belt. It's only as big as a credit card. I know that this is part of the future for me. Yeah, well, the, what, what it can give you at the moment is the capacity to send a message to anyone in the world from wherever you are in the world. Now, there are, there are ways to do data and, and internet and, and video and, and whatnot, and they get more complicated as you go up and, and you know, users of, of different calibres will, will have different things that, that they can find on the old satphoneshop.com.au. But Zolio is like the come into the market bit where, where all you want to do is be able to send a text message or an email, but you want to be able to do it from anywhere. And, and, and this is a thing that you can now do. Uh, you're like, how, how widespread is it? Well, it's everywhere. Uh, you can, I'm, I'm reading their text right here and it says, anywhere on earth, you can extend your messaging coverage to everywhere on earth beyond mobile coverage zones via cellular or Wi-Fi when available, but otherwise you're just onto the satellite network in the backcountry, on remote roads, on the oceans, in the polar regions or anywhere <laughs> in the world where cellular coverage is unavailable or unreliable. This is the trick, right? You've got your normal phone, you put an app on it, then you've got your little Zolio device, which is, you know, the size of a pack of smokes, and you turn it on and it connects to a satellite and it connects to your phone. And it means you can then text any phone number, any email address, anyone else who's got the Zolio app or who doesn't have it, doesn't matter, text anyone in the world and they can message you back. That's it. You, you Anywhere in the world, it's ridiculous. Especially when you consider the exorbitant sort of rates that uh, phone providers, as I've learnt the hard way over the years, will charge you for sending a text to somebody else. Indeed, I got stung the other week, Jeff, when you sent me a message from the Zolio and I responded to say, that's exciting. You know, fantastic, good job. My phone provider charged me for that text message and I think in this day and age, that is junk. Why wouldn't you just cut out the middleman? Don't worry about mm. some phone provider who, the way they charge for data, I'm sure it'll be in 10 years' time, the way we'll, we will interpret data will be the way we used to interpret text messaging. When, remember, whenever it was 25 cents per message in about 2001, we all yeah, realised well, 25 cents worth then. It was like a week's pay. We then realised at some point along the way that... That wasn't what it cost to submit a text message. That was simply what the, the telecommunications companies decided was going to be the going rate. They all dropped their price. Now, texts are unlimited. I'm sure it'll be the same with data, but it's not at the moment. And everything, you know, the way they squeeze you, these companies, but not Zolio, not with the sat phone. No. You, can, you can bypass them. You can you can be wherever it is. You can be travelling, uh, and and not get railroaded by roaming charges or whatever it might be. Exactly. And and you can have the surety. Listen to this. It is the only network in the world that spans every inch of the earth to offer coverage over all land masses, waterways, and in the skies. You will never be disconnected, which is admittedly nightmarish for some people in some situations, but you can turn it off. So there's an off switch, one of the things it offers, one of the many things it offers. It also, the battery life lasts for like a couple of weeks, depending how sparingly you're using it. Um, it lasts for a very long time, barely uses any power. You charge it up, you head out into the wilderness and, and you are good to go. So if this sounds good, if you want to be able to text people from the top of mountains or the mast of your ocean-going yacht, zolio.com. Check them out. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
This is the final word, and uh, this week was the final playing word. None of that makes sense, but let's just go with it for Mahendra Singh Dhoni. He's he's out of the international game, as we said at the top of the show, and there was no one else we who was better to talk to about this aside from possibly Dhoni himself, uh, and that was unlikely. A man who's a little bit easier to reach. Barat Sundarason wrote the Dhoni Touch. Ooh, baby. Um, the, 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 the guy who probably knows more about MS Dhoni than maybe not anyone. There are probably some weird fanboys out there on the internet who, who know a little bit more, but more than most people. Hello, Barat, and welcome back to The Final Word, firstly. Thank you. It's so good to be back on such... Uh, uh, forgive me if I get really emotional today. Yeah, it's, it could be an emotional day. Uh, but first, let's find out about your connection. How did you come to write the biography, the, the fairly authorised biography of yeah, MST? If, um, what was it that drew you to it and, and how did yeah, that Fairly authorised is right. I mean, he, uh, he ensured that I didn't have to have an official launch. He just posed for a picture with a book and got his wife to do it as well. <laughs> and boys and girls in the social media world, that's all that matters. And... Well, actually, the the book came about uh, not by choice. Penguin uh, India approached me in 2016. Of course, I'd written quite a few pieces on Dhoni, but who hadn't, yeah. So, but like, I, I'd written this one piece on his keeping and they read it and they were super impressed, I guess. They approached me and said, uh, do you want to write a book on Dhoni? And I said, no, because I'm too lazy. And then like, you know, his movie is coming out this year. This was 2016. And, you know, it'll be like any other Indian sports movie. They'll glorify him. He'll be like a superstar without a cape uh, so I don't want to go anywhere near this biography and they were like no 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 you have to write what do you think you will write I said okay maybe I'll unravel this enigma I just thought saying stuff like that will put them off but instead <laughs> it got them excited they were like yeah, yeah that sounds great and and it was one of those things I subconsciously didn't realize that I had observed a lot of Dhoni over the years like you know at that point what eight years into the profession and also developed some sort of weird connection with him where, again, he's not my friend or nothing like that. But for sure, that like, we connected over our hair and I guess we are both kind of unconventional people. So it, that kind of attracted me towards figuring out why he does things like that. Because there are some things that I do, as you two know, I have no idea why I do them. It's a lot like that with Dhoni. Uh, and that's really how the book came about. And then, of course, I took one and a half years and finished it off in 10 days, as you know, <laughs> because uh, I don't I'm not great at keeping deadlines. Yeah, but yeah, but the one thing he did do, like the semi-authorized bit you said was give me access to the three or four people he has very close to him because I remember when I told him about the book and uh, I would meet him at the, um, the, you know, near the practice session of an IPL, uh, the season 2017 in Pune. And that's the only, only way you can get in touch with Dhoni. I mean, I can't call him or uh, like, you know, email him or nothing like that. Like I, ha you have to wait near the practice uh, area. And thankfully, because he has, he, I don't know, he gets amused by me for some reason. So he walks up to me and he would always say something. So I would use that opportunity to just get more and more for the book, a little bit about this and that. And then I once I asked him, so, okay, fine. I don't think that this book is happening, at least not with you, because you're just like playing me saying yes and no, because I wanted to know whether he would talk to me or not. Then he said, well, I asked him, okay, who do I talk to? Who does, who knows Dhoni? And then he started, stood there and started counting on his fingers. Well, I'll tell you, one, two, three, four. No, actually only three people know me. And I said, oh, okay, great. Can you tell me who they are? And like, and initially he actually said, no, no, I'm not going to give. No, they won't talk to you. 
So I was like, well, there goes the book. But then two days later, I actually got a call from uh, the guy who's like been his childhood friend and in recent years has uh, kind of taken over a lot of his uh, management. Even though he still has the player manager, Arun Pandey, this guy called Seemant Lohani, he's better known as Chittubai. He had a significant role in that movie, by the way, which I haven't seen. And uh, like, yeah, so he he called me and he called me to Ranchi and yeah, showed me the ropes. I was treated as royalty boys. Like I was, they told like wherever I went, they were like, Are you've come from so far to write about our star. You will also become a star. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it all worked out fine. Like, yeah, that access is what he granted, and people don't speak. It's like an Omerita thing, huh, with him. Like, if his friends don't get this, his okay, he doesn't talk. How important is where he came from in India and where he spent that time in Ranchi? I remember when we were in Ranchi in 2017 with the Border Gavaska Trophy Series. That I mean, people go to his house, and that's a tourist attraction in that part of the country. And but his upbringing, what, what were you able to find out about? That? That how it informed the cricketer that he became? I think it had everything to do with who he became as a player and a captain. I mean, Ranchi, um, people from Ranchi used to tell me like before Dhoni became Dhoni, uh, the only thing Ranchi was fa- most famous for was having the biggest uh, mental asylum or uh, mental hospital in all of India, like which in Hindi is called a Pagal Khana. So they would say like, we have, we have the biggest Pagal Khana here. But now everything is about Dhoni. Just a matter of time before uh, the airport gets named after him. I'm sure that'll happen as well. But uh, <clears throat> the thing is, uh, he comes from a low middle class family. He's not a rags to riches really. But there were a lot of things that went his way as well. I think he made his own destiny. He believes a lot in all that because he grew up in a tiny apartment, but right next to a first class ground, like, you know, where they used to play Ranji Trophy cricket. So he could just go to his building terrace and watch Bihar. Then there was no Jharkhand at that point. Bihar play Ranji Trophy. So like, who gets that kind of access, right? Like I never got to see anything like that. Like, like you know, it's, it's right next door. And he was the, I think the youngest child in that family or uh, that doesn't matter. But he um, like, you know, because he came from a family where the father was hardworking, a pump guy, like, you know, uh, he would like manage the pump and his mother was a housewife. He, from a young age, had to take a lot of decisions on his own. Like, you know, uh, he, whether it was to do with his own life, like, you know, he had all these weird ways of, so the Dhoni we see now has been the Dhoni always. Like, you know, he would have weird ways of studying for exams, like he would get... Uh, he would be away playing some tape ball cricket or tennis ball cricket. So his sister would go, he would miss a lot of school. So his sister would go write down notes and stuff from other kids in his class. And then the night before the exam, Dhoni would just lie down with his eyes closed and his sister would just read stuff out. And he would just like listen to her and next day, like never, he wasn't great in academics, but he would score 50, 60%. Like he had that, he had freakishly weird abilities and uh, being from a say, state like that, of course, helped. It didn't. He didn't have to face the kind of competition you have to when you come from a Bombay or a Delhi or a Calcutta, where you're like, you know, you have to score twelve thousand, thirteen thousand runs a season to even get a look into the state junior team. Uh, so that helped. Um, and I guess just being unconventional uh, played like it, it went both ways because India is always looking for that. It's not as crazy as Sri Lanka or Pakistan where they're looking for mystery spinners and all. But when you stand out, it was also an era in Indian cricket where they were looking for people who would do extraordinary things like Dhoni could do that in domestic cricket. And that helped. So Daniel Bredig of Crick Info made the case that Dhoni is the most significant Indian cricketer. And the reasons he gave were that reason of, of coming from a more regional 
part of India, you know, not coming from one of the main cricket centres. Uh, he said the T20 World Cup win in 2007 that, that made India love 20 over cricket and that led to sporting the IPL, uh, which is a, a pretty strong argument. The World Cup win in 2011, which he captained, and leading India to be the number one test side. And you put those four things together, it, it's a pretty compelling case. Now, obviously, all of the replies to this uh, online were like, have you ever heard of Sachin Tendulkar? And it's like, <laughs> yes, he has heard of Sachin Tendulkar, and, and, he's, and he's making this suggestion nonetheless. Uh, where, where do you sit on the um, have you heard of Sachin to this is a good point sort of scale? I'm, of course, with my fellow Adelaide mate Dan Brettig, and not just because... Because like, you know, we're like South Australians, man, like we're the crows. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but, the, <laughs> but the fact though is that, no, he is definitely the most influential cricketer India has seen since Sachin. But like, it also has a lot to do with how India was evolving during their eras. Like Tendulkar came around when like, you know, capitalism was taking over India and like, you know, mm. there was um, like a lot of foreign companies coming into India. We got exposure to American TV. Everybody started using terms from friends, started use, seeking closure in their lives and all that happened. So it was a time when India was growing and they grew with Tendulkar. But then Dhoni... Get, I wouldn't say he was like, he started the small town revolution like a lot of people say because during his like rise is when a lot of people from small towns came and that had nothing to do with Dhoni like the Rayanas and the even Irfan Patans and all of them like you know they came from the small town that had a lot to do with Indians uh, in big cities getting richer and starting to send their kids overseas uh, European football taking over like becoming a big distraction and like you know rich kids didn't want to play cricket anymore <laughs> like you know it it went from being this aristocratic sport to being like uh, the common man sport in India and that had a lot to do with Dhoni's rise but the reason he's most influential I believe more than his achievements on the field is he literally got those small town boys to believe that you can just be yourself and still make it because for the longest time guys from the tier two tier three cities in India always like would get intimidated by guys like me and like people who grew up in the bigger cities like you know they would always like Bombay was the city of dreams and all that but they wouldn't be comfortable being themselves when they would once they would come there but because Dhoni was this guy with this really not good quality long hair and like you know he played cricket in his own way and like you know uh, actually this ad man I'll tell you this this ad man who's very famous in India called Pralat Kakar who made a lot of ads with cricketers and Bollywood guys when he worked with Dhoni for the first time he actually told him boss can you please stop using your body soap on your hair and actually use shampoo if you want to keep your hair long <laughs> because it was really uh, yeah it wasn't the greatest uh, uh, mane ever but what he that self belief and that confidence that he brought with him really convinced people from small towns and not just in cricket but generally around India that you know what I can be myself I don't need to speak the best quality English or that really doesn't matter like you know I can just adapt and grow and like you see everybody from then on like you know who's come onto the international stage from the smaller cities have been like that like they've never wanted to like I mean it, there was always this belief that you need to be polished once you make it to the international stage you need to speak in a certain way you need to dress in a certain way uh, yeah Dhoni kind of said yeah not really like you know I'll do it my way 
you know in a way i follow that same dictator in the press box as you guys well know <laughs> i started it that hair anecdote's exactly why we have you uh, on here and not someone else <laughs> but uh, also interesting that observation uh, about um about tendulkar and capitalism that, that's one that harsha bogle makes persuasively he did so as well in calling the shots on this feed a couple of months ago and i suppose the the extension of that is that as capitalism and commercial television and white ball cricket took over in the 90s, Dhoni arrives right on the cusp of that T20 revolution. Of course, the format was being played before 2007, but that World T20 when the high-profile Indian players elected not to go, Dhoni's leading the side, the IPL comes the next year. I mean, I know this is well-worn terrain and everyone's made this observation, but in the absence of Dhoni, I mean, is the IPL the IPL? It feels as though so much of it hinges on his own influence, certainly at the start. Yeah, I mean, and even before the IPL, right, the one greatest aspect of Dhoni is he's always had his finger on the pulse. I mean, even the fact that he announced his retirement on Instagram, like people are like, oh, how could he do it on Instagram? But he's done it always. Like he announced, so when Chennai Super Kings came back from their suspension in 2017, all he did was post a picture of himself with the Chennai Super Kings jersey number seven with his dog saluting him on on like Instagram. Like, you know, because he at some point has realized Instagram is bigger than Twitter. Twitter is for like, you know, smart guys like you and me and Jeff and, uh, you know, it, it, it's not as at least in India, as critical mass as Instagram mm. is currently. Like everybody has an Instagram profile. Every auto guy in India has an Instagram profile. It's, he's there uh, or she's there. So uh, th- he's always had his finger on the pulse. Even like, imagine allowing a movie to be made about him while he was an active cricketer, but then smartly getting his own player agency to produce that movie so that everything is kind of controlled. <laughs> he's, he's always <laughs> been on top of things I- I- in that sense. And like, if you look at the presentation ceremony of that 2007 T20 World Cup or World T20 as it was called he was making a statement by coming and lifting the trophy in his sleeveless like vest it was almost like wait like you know this is me embracing like me kind of cultivating my own brand image I'm not because prior to that what he did smartly was he because Tendulkar and Sevag and Dravid would get all the big cola products and all the he started like getting like putting getting himself in advertisements for like ceiling fans and uh, like you know bicycles it's stuff that the common man would reach uh, need right like he almost became the common man's hero but then with the t20 world t20 and the ipl just about to begin like it was his t- turn to like take his brand to the next level so Everything he does has like a reason to it, except the fact that he put 1929 in his Instagram post, which according to me, I know there have been so many theories about it. Oh, was it sunset time? Oh, what? maybe it was moonset or all that. My theory is he just went back to his room after practice. And you know how in all five-star hotels next to the room phone, there's always a digital clock. He just like ordered room service, put the phone down. And he's like, okay, 1929. And of course, he's an army guy. So he had to put it in our <laughs> format. Like I'm telling you, it's going to be something something so ridiculous people are making a big hue and cry about the the post itself but and that is really how he transformed like the brand of Indian cricket and like you know the smartness to start I mean you can call it smartness or shrewdness or whatever but to start your own player agency like you know where you're managed by yourself like you know you press release goes out that Riti Sports has signed ten, uh, like MS Dhoni for like whatever 50 crore like but like 50 crore of like whose money like it's like it's and then to take that price tag to a Pepsi and say look boss he's been signed for 50 crore so you can't be just giving him like a crore like you know that doesn't tally and to overnight just increase the like the 
like you know the selling rate of indian the top indian cricketers he grew and tendulkar grew with him so in so many ways going back to him being influential yeah but will the ipl have been uh, not really because even with the ipl he played a big gamble right where he didn't hail from any of the eight cities but there were three franchises like who wanted him to be their marquee player but he he said like but true, wait if a marquee player gets like a fixed price and uh, in if uh, he gets 15% more than the highest bidding like highest player like or the guy who gets bought for the highest price in the auction so he's like i don't want to depend on someone and like go to a team where like you know i'm no longer in control of my destiny so instead he just puts takes this gamble puts his name in the auction and gets picked up by the chennai super kings for the highest price in the auction and you know he hasn't looked back then he's turned and chennai is the perfect city they've never had a cricketing superstar that they can call their own like and they at that point anyway even now they don't uh, and he goes to that city and like you know and perfect connect as well like small town boy underdog you see tamil cinema is exactly the heroes all of them look like dhoni like people who are relatable to to them not the best looking guys come on i mean dhoni is not the greatest looking guy uh shit i've dissed his hair and his look sorry i mean he's smart charming guy but like yeah and someone who does all these extraordinary things on the field but off the field is like a simpleton almost like a simple guy who everybody can relate to he's played those cards really smartly to build his brand and he will continue to do so even um, the timing of this uh like you know his retirement is perfect look at that and people think that oh no he should have um, like you know announced it earlier but this is the longest notice period anyone has served before retiring think about it like one and a half years almost and the ipl gets confirmed and within like a week he announces his retirement thereby basically ensuring that the chennai super kings brand just goes through the roof basically now it's been is out there that if you want to see dhoni you'll only see him in yellow that's just smart business like if you ask me so when it comes to chennai and the corruption part of the story the team being suspended the betting that was going on with the the team principal the son-in-law of the owner and all the rest of it you know where does that sit with doni his like what are what are sort of the implications of his involvement or lack of involvement with that it it seems like he's been able to be a clean skin really he's been able to somehow just not have those things associated with him even though as the most influential player at the franchise it it stretches credulity to suggest that he knew nothing about any of this and was had no involvement ever yeah i mean that is always going to stick with him like for all the love he uh gets in india and like this unconditional love there are enough detractors who always question his involvement or lack thereof like you said in that whole scandal of uh, being the captain being in touch with shrinivasan all the time and uh the son in law and because the son in law was seen around the team i guess it really depends on which side of the debate you sit on like how much he knew or how much he wanted to know because you speak to guys who play for chennai like uh, even like throughout the history of the chennai super kings they say well we didn't know whether we were going to play or not till we reached the ground and like you know there would be times when we would uh, dhoni would go for the toss come back and that's when i would realize i'm playing so in terms of who would play and not like if, whether that's true like was like was he 
doing that because he knew that the son-in-law because that's that theory as well because he like was he doing it because the, he knew the son-in-law was involved in some way or not i think that because it's india <laughs> we'll never find out the real story because in india once you go beyond especially as a sportsman not so much in bollywood or other like glamour professions but once you in cricket especially in cricket you go beyond one point you become untouchable like you know that has happened throughout indian cricket history it happened with kapil dev mohammad azruddin is back even though he wasn't like a superstar of the kapil dev dhoni category um you become untouchable and i'm not saying you would get away with everything but after a while you just you you'll never know the real story or uh, what his involvement was but from what i have like learned from like you know whatever conversations around him and the chennai super kings he is always claimed that my conscience is clear so it's never really affected me to any extent uh, i i was honest to the uh, i played like you know i played my role in the investigation i answered all questions honestly and yeah that's where he's always left it at what's next for dani putting to one side the the immediate future with the Chennai Super Kings and what he'll do on the field this year and for who knows how many years but when when it's all over when he stops playing altogether where do you see him in in sort of 10 years time because obviously he's an icon i mean numerically as far as the you know what he did as a batter as a wicketkeeper as a captain as an icon um he he sort of ticks every box really it would mean that the next part of his life i mean he could do whatever he wants what do you think he will do though i mean his involvement with chennai super kings might be perpetual i don't think because even when they just come back from suspension or even like you know after last year's world cup he's always been around i think he gets really emotional around chennai super kings uh, they uh, it's a very unique relationship i think that he completely redefined the geography of indian cricket fandom in my opinion uh through his relationship with chennai super kings uh and he will always remain with i mean shrinivasan was on record day before saying he will continue playing till i like you know forever <laughs> like so don't be surprised if you see a 50 year old dhoni to show up for csk because i'll tell you one thing about him he's a pahadi uh, which means that he's a man from the mountains he's you've seen him right he's incredibly strong and he's not like his fitness doesn't come from work in the gym so he's just naturally fit and if it's just the ipl like one and a half months and he changes everything for the ipl like his sleep patterns are amazing he doesn't sleep before uh like you know 6 a.m or the night before the match and he wakes up just like you know two or three hours before the match because he doesn't want any stress about the game and all that he wakes up at like three or four has breakfast at three or four and heads to the ground so he has his own crazy schedule with regards to the ipl he doesn't he's not someone who trains too much like in terms of his cricket so yeah i mean with his natural reflexes and till his reflexes go i won't be surprised if he plays for the next four or five years but you never know with dhoni but he will also play a major role in his contributions towards the indian army because that he takes so personally and he is a fauji which means like a soldier at heart like if anything he would have wanted to be that and not a cricketer i mean cricket happened somehow uh and he's like you know he is like he has an honorary post but he has also gone and got himself like a badge by uh, when he i think after he retired from test cricket that's all he did he just wanted uh, a badge on his uniform like he didn't want to be just like an honorary post guy like you know just because he's famous he's got an honorary uh, uh, a rank like he wanted to rise up so he went and you need to do five jumps as a paratrooper and he he got that done so he, he, i don't know how much uh, of like 
a physical role he'll play with the Indian Army, but for sure he's going. He contrib- contributes a lot. Like you know, uh, uh, it rarely comes in the news to like martyrs and like you know army widows, and uh, he does a lot of that. So I think he'll focus a lot of energy on that. And another thing. and this is me putting it out there i won't be surprised by if he does is in some shape or form get into politics like you know actual politics because is something that has from what i've learned is always interested him he likes that kind of uh, not public service just but just the whole fun of politics and uh, uh, because uh, the story goes that uh at one point a friend of his asked him like like mahi if you like wanted to win an election in india you could like you know stand in any constituency around the around the country like you know chennai you are chennai like you know super king in bombay and like you know in ranchi and then he actually said he act- his original family comes from a town on the hills so he said no in india the th- thing is pol- politics and politicians don't win on the basis of their name but they win on the basis of their surname because people vote and by surname like you know you can make out the community and the caste of a man right so people vote based on community and caste because they think that okay he's one of us i can trust him so he said i mean he joked to his friend that if i ever want to like run for an election i'll go back to my original hometown in uttarakhand and that's where i will start like so i mean who knows i would some sort of dabbling in politics i expect personally maybe i'm wrong uh but yeah i don't see him play much of a role in indian cricket maybe who knows like you know if the money's right i guess one chapter ends for ms dhoni but there's going to be many many more in this story i'm sure and when the time comes to update that book the dhoni touch it'll be you brat sand racer who i'm sure is doing it thank you again for being such a generous contributor to the final word ah uh, always man always a lot of love to you too as always and uh, yeah the dhoni touch is back to being number one best seller amongst cricket books in india <laughs> thank you mr dhoni <laughs> hi i'm natalie jimanis and you're listening to the final word with jeff lemon and adam collins Uh, this is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins or Colin Adams as he was known in South Africa at one of the grounds you were trying <laughs> to get right. into <laughs> Colin Adams Colin Adams where is Colin Adams uh not not here um not here never been here never will be here uh, Barat Sundarais and thank you to him for joining the show uh, always good to talk to our friend from South Australia yes raconteur tells great stories loves talking about ms dhoni so that was a, a real joy um jeff as we come to an end you mentioned off the top but i think i should reiterate this point that with story time being so much fun on the weekend at the moment rebooting our old best interviews as well as spending a decent slab of time doing nerd pledge and telling some stories of cricket history we have more room than we've ever had before as far as working with our commercial partners and friends so if you want to get involved with us at the final word and want to especially be involved with that weekend story time show do drop us a line at finalwordcricket@gmail.com or find us on patreon or twitter um all of our details are in the show notes but yeah this is the perfect time really leading into what will be uh, a few weeks of australian cricket and then into the australian summer and whatever form it ends up taking where yeah enthusiastic about working with as many people that want to work with us so hit us up in all the usual places come on down to the podcast party yeah <laughs> podcast pool party dim with corinna atnas down there get in get in the water's fine uh this is the final word with jeff lemon and adam collins it's on bad producer productions edited by david collins 
And uh, we'll be back on the weekend with Storytime. We'll have our interview from last year with Natalie Germanos, the South African broadcaster, which is a really excellent chat. We listened back to that again recently and went, yep, that's the one. We definitely need to, to pop that back up. So if you haven't heard it, do listen in and we'll be back with the regular show sort of mid next week after the next England test match is finished. That pushes us probably to Wednesday by the time next week's show will be out. They, they vary a little around the season, but they get to you in the end. And we will get to you in the end, in your feeds, whenever it is that you choose to listen. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. Bye. So you know what I, meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it.